forevermore. There it is. I didn't have it turned on, guys. Sorry about that. Welcome this morning to our live service. We've relaunched our second one. It's our 1045 service here at Victory Church in Marion, Arkansas. Thank you for all of you that are logging in on our various social media platforms. We're live streaming. And our second service, we are thrilled to begin to see some things return to a little bit as we're edging toward normalcy. And so I just want to say how grateful I am to have you with us today. So many of you, I haven't seen some of you in a year. I've hugged so many necks today, just so grateful to see folk and have some guests, some visitors this morning. Uh, two very special to me. Number one, my son, his lovely wife. I'm so glad you picked him, Holly, I'm telling you. We, we are blessed. And my handsome grandson, Henry Wade, sitting right on the front row. And I don't want to embarrass him, but my, my new next-door neighbor, Thomas Gerard's back there, so I'm thankful to have him. It's great to have a good neighbor. How many are you thankful for a good neighbor? Amen? So everybody's a special guest. Thank you today for being with us here at Victory Church. We're excited on this Resurrection Sunday to be doing, we did a little mini-series, just two parts. Last Sunday, we started this series called Seven Days. And I, I preach with a one-thing concept. I'll summarize everything I'm going to say in one, either, either one or two sentences so it's easy to remember so you can take it home with you. And I'll kind of repeat that again through the message like a chorus so that you grab that. If you don't get anything else, you get this. So our one thing from last week's message is this. Say it with me if you would, please. Uh, is it up? There, there it is. A lot can happen in seven days. It's not over till it's over. Man, you, you guys sound great. Wow. Amazing. I had to warm them up a couple of times in the first service today because we're not used to getting here so early. I tell you, it hit us because the band got here at 7.30 to warm up. So we are thrilled today to be with you in the second service. Look to your neighbor and tell him one more time. Say, a lot can happen in seven days. It's not over till it's over. Amen. The, the title of the message this morning in this seven days series, number two, is called The Other Half of the Gospel. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, I, I hope to unpack that in the next 20 minutes today. And um, I'm just excited today to bring to you from the Word of God. We're going to look this morning for our text. It's found in the book of Revelation. It's titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. There in the last book of the Holy Scriptures, Revelation chapter 1, we're going to get verses 17 and 18. The Scripture says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, now read with me because this is in red letters. These are Jesus' words. Everybody say it with me from this point. Here we go. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. And I just want to pose a question for you this morning just to think about. Take home with you. Now that Jesus has the keys of death and the grave in his hand, What's he going to do with them? So today, our one thing is, a lot can happen in seven days. It's not over till it's over. I want to give a little bit of context. I think it's so important to give context to Scripture and not just pluck it out of the setting that it's in, because those things are always important. I want to just get, go back and get a few verses from earlier in the chapter of Revelation 1. He says, John writes in verse 4, he says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Asia Minor in the Bible is modern-day Turkey, okay? 
So we're looking at the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. All of the seven churches in the book of Revelation are right there in that region. Ephesus, Pergamum, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, uh, Laodicea. I didn't get all seven of them, uh, but you, you, you get the idea. All of these that he writes these specific messages to, and he gives them a promise he, to him that overcomes. And he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. All of those seven churches are right there in that same region in the, book, in the area of Turkey. And it says, grace and peace to you, to the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead. Colossians reiterates this, says the firstborn from among the dead. Another location says the first begotten from the dead. Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. And the reason that's important, 1 Corinthians 15 says that he is the first fruits of the resurrection and afterward we follow. He has conquered death. He has, is walking in life and immortality and that is the hope that we have. That is the hope that we have that this mortal body will put on immortality. That's what the resurrection gives us the promise and seals that hope. The first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world and glory to him who loves us and has freed us. Everybody say, I'm free. And has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him and all the nations of the world will, will mourn for him. Yes, amen. Verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was and who is still to come, the almighty one. Would you bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer this morning. Gracious God and Father, Almighty Lord, King of heaven, King of earth, thank you today for your blessing upon us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, O oh God, that what we deserved, we didn't get. That's called your mercy. What we don't deserve, we've been poured out upon. That's called your grace. You've given us abundance, peace, prosperity, the power and the presence of God. Thank you in this place this morning that as we've lifted our hearts and our hands and our voices and worshiped you. I ask you, Holy Spirit, now that you would be in our thinking, that you would illuminate our minds to understand. Give us understanding and perception, O oh God, today to see you, Lord Jesus, high and lifted up, seated beside your Father, full of majesty, full of grace, full of power, full of glory. I just acknowledge before you and everyone listening that I, I'm utterly dependent upon you. I need you, Jesus, more than I've ever needed you before. And I ask you today to, to take the thoughts of my mind, let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. You're my strength and my redeemer. I ask you today these things in the matchless name, the powerful name, the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Say the one thing with me one more time. A lot can happen in seven days. It's not over till it's over. I believe that with all of my heart. Two points this morning, and I'm going to be brief, I promise. Don't, if you don't believe me, ask the people in the first service. I made it. I made my time. The first one is the veiled victory of the cross. What looked like complete and utter defeat 
I want to just say this. On the surface, there's nothing good about Good Friday. But you have to look deeper. Before we dig into the depths of what took place on Good Friday and then on the third day, we know as we're celebrating today the resurrection of Jesus Christ, conquering death, hell, sin, the curse, the grave, all of it. The Gospel of John it's recorded in all four Gospels, but I'm particularly paying attention to John today. Three verses, John 19, verses 28 through 30. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. Everybody say finished. Nothing is so fulfilling as finishing something. Starting a project, seeing it to completion. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. He's hanging on the cross, suspended Completely naked, the artists are kind to us in their rendition of crucifixion pictures, but actually Roman history tells us that those criminals that died, the cruel punishment of crucifixion in the Roman Empire, hung out there no, completely shameless. They, had, they were filled with shame, wanting and everything to cover themselves, but were completely naked before everything. And in that same way, the Bible says that all of us and everything that we think and know and do are naked before him with whom we have to do. He sees us. He knows us. He knows the thoughts we are about to think before we think them. Somebody say amen. He says, I am thirsty. Verse 29 says, a jar of sour wine. Everybody say vinegar. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. Yuck. You know, I've, I've, I've gotten in my older age into the habit of this whole apple cider vinegar thing in the morning, and I can't imagine being thirsty and somebody giving that to me to drink. Now, there's a reason it's what's going on here. The Bible says a jar of sour wine or vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. Let me get the last verse, then I'm going to make some comment. When Jesus had tasted it, everybody say tasted when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. The Greek word, tetelestai. The debt is paid in full. It's like you, you get that final payment and the mortgage on your house is completely done. You hold the title clear and free. It's, it's a finished work. It's, a, it's the fulfillment of something that you've labored for or something that you've been striving to pay off. Jesus Christ paid up all the mounted debt with all of the penalties and all of the interest that had accrued over thousands of years because every year in the Feast Day of Atonement, it didn't actually wipe out the sins. It just rolled them over in a kind of a cosmic promissory note so that when Jesus became the final once and for all sacrifice, he paid for sins past, sins present, and sins future, for the sins of the whole world. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is way deeper than the surface we're able to see here. I did a biblical historical tour in Israel in 2008 after I finished a postgraduate degree. And I was able to sit for days under a Messianic Jew. His name was Ariel. He was probably one of the very best Bible teachers I have ever heard or seen in my life. A little short Jewish guy who loved Jesus with all of his heart. He had, he had come to meet the Messiah 
that yet so many of his people are longing to see. And so when he carried us through the various locations on, along the Galilee, uh, along the, the Sea of Galilee and at Capernaum, and we, we, we stood in the place where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount and visited Peter's house where his mother was raised up and all of the stories that you hear about in the Bible and the wine press and, and the, the threshing of the wheat and all of those things, Ariel took all of these amazing natural pictures and he opened up the Word of God in such a powerful way, pointing it all back to one central character of which the Bible is all written about. And his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Somebody say amen. And he, he taught something when we, when we came to this whole issue of the crucifixion, we came back to Jerusalem and we stood there on the Temple Mount and we saw the place where Jesus was crucified and we saw the hill called Golgotha, which is called the place of the skull, which literally looks, out, looks like a, a, a decayed head because literally it had two cavernous holes there that looked like eye sockets. The, once the, the flesh has decayed off of a human person's body and you just see the skull and that's what this whole mountainous big hill area looked like it was this place of the skull where Jesus was crucified and I opened up the meaning of that last week so I'm not going to redo that this morning go back and listen to it everything is free on our website or podcast whatever you'd like to get that's all free of charge we don't sell any of this and so Jesus hung between two thieves dying a criminal's death on the the place of the skull the hill called Golgotha. And in this moment, he said, I thirst. And Ariel told us the story about, and forgive me, I'm going to be just a little bit crass, but I, I want to show you how deep Jesus tasted death for every man, the book of Hebrews says. They had public restrooms, literally kind of latrines, where people would go and take you know, do, do their bodily functions. And there were restroom attendants in those latrines who would literally have hyssop branches with a sponge on the bottom of that branch and they would dip that sponge into vinegar because vinegar is a natural disinfectant. It will kill germs. So they would dip that sponge into that vinegar and then you would, whatever little bit of means that you would have, a little penny or a denarii, whatever, you would tip that restroom that that latrine attendant because he would help you out by taking that sponge and giving your backside a scrub I know this is totally gross but this is literally this is what he taught us what happened he said it wasn't just a sponge for people that were being crucified this was a common sponge from the latrines it was something that they did in the Roman Empire just to bring more disgust and more shame and just take the dignity away the fact that Jesus hung on the cross and an element that was used dipped into something sour and then placed at his lips. Can you imagine the, the, the most disgusting aspect of our humanity that is the natural process after we've digested our food? Can you imagine the sponge and probably what was on it? And that sponge is dipped into something sour when Jesus, our Savior, hung on the cross and it touches his lips. And as soon as he tastes of it. Remember the Bible says Jesus tasted death for every man. Jesus is not afraid of your mess. That's as plain as I'm going to make it right there. He's not afraid of your mess. He's not afraid 
He's not afraid of, the, of the, the dirty aspects of your life. Nobody in here is so far gone that the love of Jesus can't reach you. Nobody in here is so, so you, you can't do anything so bad that it would make God love you any less than he already does. And for, the, for those of us who might be inclined toward a little self-righteousness, you can't do anything so good that would make him love you any more than he already does. He loves you with an unconditional, everlasting love. And when Jesus tasted death for every man, it was down to a disgusting, literal fulfillment of that. A sponge that had cleaned somebody, dipped into vinegar, touched his lips, and he's declared, that's it, I've tasted death for every man. Death, I know the taste of death. I know the very dregs, the, the lowest, most disgusting aspect of humanity. I've tasted of it to that degree. And he says, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is paid in full. Somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. This Good Friday, on the surface, there's nothing good about it. It's disgusting. It is heinous. It is bloody crowned with thorns, beaten with a cat of nine tails, spat upon, mocked. His, his garments literally were gambled for by the Roman soldiers. Anything that could give him a smidgen of dignity was ripped from him, hanging completely naked between heaven and earth. He became the sin bearer for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He knew, who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness is not some goody two-shoes holier-than-thou-ness. It literally means righteousness. You're in right standing with God. When you go to the bank, if you're in good standing with your banker, it means there's a righteous relationship there. You've, you're a person of your word. You've said what you would do, and your credit report shows that you did. We don't have that, but Jesus got it for us. Hallelujah. I love that. This veiled victory. The, the, Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians and he says, this is a mystery that has been hidden. I didn't come to you speaking words of wisdom, the wisdom of man. He said, but I came to you in the power of God. He says, let me grab it here in my text. He says, no, the wisdom that we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden even though he made it out for our ultimate glory before the world began. Look at this. Verse 8 says, but the rulers of this world would have not understood it had they, if they had, he says, they would have not crucified our glorious Lord. That's what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The rulers of the world, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. You, you take him and crucify him. Turned him over to the Jewish leaders, and they screamed, crucify. The, the governors of the regions, the Caesar on the throne in Rome, not just those of the, of the Roman Empire, but those rulers around the world, and I don't believe that it's necessarily speaking about the natural rulers not knowing what they were doing. I believe it's talking about the principalities and the powers and the demonic forces in the spirit realm above the earth that motivates sometimes the, the hand and the puppet that's motivating the people around us. The evil that we see in the world is not necessarily directly by those who are doing it, but they are being influenced by demonic forces. Oh, pastor, you really believe that? I absolutely know that. I have encountered that. The face of God is revealed in this moment. At first glance, there's nothing good about Good Friday. Some folk think 
that the resurrection was the turnaround of the defeat at the cross. I'm going to say this twice because I want you to get it. The resurrection was not the reversal of a defeat at the cross. The resurrection was the revelation of the victory at the cross. It was a veiled victory. It was a hidden victory. It was one that God says, I'm going to send my only son whom I love so much, my precious son, and he's going to die for you. But the other half of the gospel is not just that he died for us, but now that he lives for us. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together. Give him praise. He is our Christus victor. He is our victorious champion. A lot can happen in seven days because it's not over till it's over. I want you to hear this this morning. Think about this. On that Good Friday, his mother was devastated. The disciples were disappointed. The haters hated. The doubters said, see, I told you so. The Romans were rejoicing. The Jewish leaders were, were gleeful because finally this would-be Messiah who was turning the tables over in the temple and stirring up all of their religious, the, the assurance that they had that they had control. They thought, well, this threat is gone. We've dealt with him. And you know, for a moment it looked like that. Even nature responded in the same way. The skies turned dark and the sun refused to shine. And I want to tell you right now this morning, it may be Friday in your life. It may look like everything that can go wrong is going wrong. It may look like that mess has multiplied all around you in your life. But I want to tell you, don't quit because it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. If anything motivates me to not quit, it's this story. It's the resurrection. It literally is the rebirth of hope. Because Jesus is alive this morning, and that's not a myth. This is not just some nice story that we tell because we want to inject a little bit of hope into people. Yes, it brings hope. It brings hope because it's truth. He was seen alive by multitudes of witnesses. First Corinthians records that at one time he was seen by over 500 people. I read this week, this is a reminder of Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, who was part of the Nixon administration during the Watergate scandal in, the, in 1973 when that whole thing exploded and opened up and he goes into jail for a period of about 18 months because of the mishandling of one file. Can you imagine that? A whole lot of folk need to be in jail these days. He went to jail for 18 months and it was the providence of God because he met Jesus while he was in jail. A Brown University super intellectual Chuck Colson became the founder of Prison Fellowship, devoted the rest of his life to uh, be building ministry that would bless the families of people who were in prison and, and, and give those children Christmas presents that dad or mom couldn't get to them and, and, and lead Bible studies and, and send amazing amounts of wonderful gospel-centered material into prisons around the world so that men and women who were temporarily incarcerated could actually truly get their lives transformed and be rehabilitated, not because of being behind bars for a period of time, but because they had been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I had somebody in this room to help me a little bit this morning. I'm so thankful for hope. Chuck Colson said it this way, the, the very idea that pseudo-intellectuals want to thrust at us to say that it was a myth and it was made up and they lied 
He said, all of the people that colluded with us and conspired for, for Nixon with the Watergate scandal, their lives fell apart within three weeks and they turned state's evidence and went to jail for a short amount of time. He said, these people who saw Jesus alive kept telling the truth for the next 40 years till some of them were crucified. Some of them crucified upside down, the apostle Peter. Some of them sawn asunder. Some of them thrown to the lions. Some of them becoming martyrs for us so that we could walk in the newness of life because of Jesus. Christ. Not once did anyone ever recant or turn their story around. Why? Because, because liars don't keep telling a lie when their lives are on the line. They told the truth. They told the truth until they burned at the stake, until they were eaten by lions, until they were crucified. Can anybody in the room hear what I'm saying this morning? This is truth. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 1, point number 2, and I'm finished, is the necessity of the resurrection. Sometime in some circles, we are heavy on the cross, and Jesus died so we can live. And yes, that's true, but I just want you to remember that tens of thousands of people experience the heinous, crucified death, the execution provided by the Roman Empire. It was the way that they maintained control and they dealt with the enemies of the state. Actually, there were a number of self-proclaimed would-be messiahs that had been dealt with the very same way by the Roman Empire. And so they basically just saw this as another one in a line of self-proclaimed prophets, self-anointed messiahs. But they didn't know that the difference in this one was when they buried the others. They didn't get up, but on the third day, this one would. Come on, somebody. Why? Why can we look back and call Good Friday good now? Because we can look back through the lens of the resurrection that he's already come up out of the grave, and we can see the veil has been pulled away. It wasn't a defeat on the cross. It was a hidden victory because he tasted death for every man. The book of Colossians says that every accusing aspect of the law of God that made every one of us guilty, everything I've ever done wrong, everything that I ever thought wrong, everything I ever said wrong, everything that the law of God accused me, the scripture says it was nailed to the cross and Jesus took it out of the way. It's gone. God is not mad at anybody in this room this morning. He's poured that out on Jesus 2,000 years ago. My, my. But it's not enough just to preach the cross because multitudes of men had died a cruel execution on a cross. But it's the fact that this one didn't stay in the grave. He got up on the third day. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 1 through 4. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets and the holy scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Now I want you to see this. And he was what? Say it. Shown to be the son of God. What? Everybody say that word right there. 
when. He was shown to be the Son of God when he what? When he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. It's the rebirth of hope. Hope is not just some Christian fantasy, but it's the confidence that we have based upon the character and the nature of God. God is a God of integrity. He's given us his word. His word is sure. The scripture says in, in Psalm 119, verse 89, your word is forever settled in heaven. It's not changing. God doesn't alter the contract. He didn't give fine print that you didn't get a chance to read and then trick you. God's word is sure. It is steadfast. It is immovable. He is a faithful God. He is a holy God. We can count on his word. His promises are sure. As I close this morning, I remember my freshman year of college at Arkansas State University. It was the spring of 1980. My Aunt Lucille had given me a new translation of the scripture. And I was about the process of memorizing the book of 1 Peter. I had made a recommitment of my life to Jesus Christ as I started college. And we saw revival break out on the campus. Literally hundreds, athletes, musicians, students got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're just had a, we had a move of God on the campus. And I was blessed to be a part of that. I was discipling people, leading every week. Somebody gets saved. And I was thrilled to be a part of a witnessing ministry and just getting the gospel out and evangelizing and sitting in, in Bible studies in dorm rooms with other guys and sometimes young ladies in the mix. And I remember sitting out there in that spring day in April, getting toward the end of the semester, and I had this new translation of Scripture, and I was working on memorizing the book of First Peter, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I can see the sunny skies, and I can remember being out there by myself. They've torn down Delta Hall now, and it was just a slum. Within a, but at that point, it wasn't great. And I, I, I saw these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, hath begotten us again to a lively, a living hope. It, the original said the, a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, waiting in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God made me be born again, and it was the living hope. It was alive. It was a hope that that thing which animated Jesus that brought him out of the grave, it's in me now. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside you. Don't let the enemy lie to you and tell you you can't beat what you're struggling against. Don't let him tell you that you can't win what you're trying to finish and complete. He's the God of the universe who created all of this. You're struggling to get your business going. You know what? You don't need a thousand and one good ideas. You just need one God idea. You just need his favor on one good decision. You, 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 you're struggling because the marriage is on the rocks. Let me tell you something. It doesn't become a failure until you quit. Don't quit. There's no quit in you.
It looked like he lost it, but that was a veiled victory. The resurrection wasn't a turnaround of a defeat at the cross. It was the revelation of the victory that took place at the cross. And you know what? If you won't quit, I'm going to tell you, though it may feel like it's Friday in your life right now, don't quit because Sunday's coming. Come on, somebody. Look at your neighbor and say, Sunday's coming. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord this morning as we close this message. A lot can happen in seven days. It's not over till it's over. The half of the gospel we hear about all the time is he died so we might live. But the other half is this. He lives so that we might reign. The scripture says, because of the abundant gift of righteousness and his grace, we reign as kings in this life. That's Romans 5. He lives. He died so I can live. He lives so I can reign. Reign as a king over sin over everything that's under the curse. Jesus has already defeated it. He has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. If you believe that this morning, put your hands together and give him praise. Hallelujah. With all of my heart, I hope this message has injected some hope and some courage in you, given you some heart. Today I want to say to you, if you feel like you just need an injection, as we close this service and you would just say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Fill me with fresh hope. I need it. Or maybe you've personally never crossed the line of faith in your life and looked to the one who hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, and he said, it's paid for. And you've never put your trust in the one who paid for your sins. It's very simple. I want to lead you in a prayer with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. If, if that was you and you would say, Pastor, pray for me, I need hope. Or if, if that was you and you would say, Pastor, pray for me, I, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. If you would like for us to pray for you, no, and everybody's eyes closed, heads down, slip your hand up. I'm the only one looking. Yes, I see one right there. There's two. There's one in the back. Three. Anybody else? Anyone would say, Pastor, please pray for me. Four. Man, hands all over the room going up. Come on. This is beautiful. I love it. Everybody in the room, I want you to pray. Those who raised your hands, don't be afraid to pray out loud because everybody in the room is going to pray out loud with you. We're here with you as a team. Everybody, come on, say these words with me. Say, Father, I thank you for this word. I'm grateful. Thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace in my life. Jesus, I turn to you. I trust you. Save me. I turn from my past. I turn to you in faith. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning.